Welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I love that last statement. He would never leave us alone again. Uh, there's been often times when I'm sitting there going, God, leave me alone. In the middle of something, you're sitting there going, you know God's involved, but you're like, oh, I'm tired. He's like, that's okay, give me those burdens. This was the beginning of the Christmas story. Imagine you're in Elizabeth's sandals, not her shoes, her sandals. I mean, how would you feel? Lucky? Being older and finally having a child. I mean, I, that gets me choked up every time being an older parent. Now, I'm sure she was much older than this. Astonished? How about embarrassed? I mean, there's, we're, we're going to get into the, the whole embarrassment aspect of, of where she was at in life and how it was portrayed when you didn't have a child. But now you're older and you're having a child. How will people look at you? And yet, what a wonderful, huge miracle this is. And her husband is a a priest who who had a very special day ahead of him as we began the story. So much so, at the end of the day, he was speechless. He couldn't even talk. In Luke chapter 1, okay, I'm going to have to cut this out of the recording, but I need a flyswatter. water. It's going to bug me all day. Let's see if we can get it away from here. Luke chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were first eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Now Luke was one of the 12 disciples, and he traveled with Paul. You know, you read that in Acts, that he traveled around with Paul. And, you know, he was a Gentile uh, doctor that converted to Christianity. And during his travels, he figured out that there were books being written about Christ, and that many of these books were not the truth. You know, had Christ doing all sorts of different things, you know, uh, taking clay and making doves and kind of almost being an ornery type of kid. And, and, and in fact, uh, for some reason, uh, well, the, I, I know the reasons, but I won't go into all of it. But the, but the Catholic Church adopted about five or six different books that uh, 
on the name just went right out of my head the, uh, what they call these particular books but, but it has all this kind of stuff that Christ supposedly did but these books were not the truth and Luke said we need to have the truth and Luke is the only writer that, that writes from birth to death and resurrection he's the only one that tells the complete story all the way through and he passed this on to Theopolis Scholars have debated for years who this person was because his name means lover of God. Was it a specific person or was it, you know, to the masses? We think it was a specific person. We think it was somebody maybe high up in the Roman government because of the title, Most Excellent. You just didn't go around calling people Most Excellent. You know, Most Excellent Rob, how are you doing today? You know, we just don't talk like that, do we? Unless you're, you know... The president we call president. The congressman we call congressman. You see what I'm saying? Senator we call senator. So, so we think it was somebody high up in the government. Now Luke is writing at a time when some of the apostles have died off and he's traveling around with Paul, most likely around 60 AD, within 30 years of the death of, of Christ and his resurrection. So he begins by saying, I'm going to teach you the facts, and I'm going to, to reassure you of the things that you have learned uh, from your childhood. And he starts with the story of the birth of Jesus. But he doesn't really start there. He kind of starts really the story with, with some other guy. He begins with saying, in the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly family or priestly division of Abijah, whose his wife was Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. So he begins by saying it's in the, in the time of, of King Herod of Judea. Now Herod lived and ruled the, the whole area, what we, uh, what area called Palestine, uh, kind of the, the biblical lands that we think of at, at this point. He was a powerful ruler from, from 40 B.C. to 4 B.C. And his, you know, he died four years before what we call Christ, year zero. So it was four years before Christ. He, was, uh, he, he died. Uh, and basically what happened was the, the calendar kind of got messed up as, as they calculated all of that. But we know that he, that he died in a year that a certain eclipse took place. So this is how they, the scholars can go back and tell from the stars in the sky when this was. So they calculate this. But we also know that Jesus was born about two years before Herod the Great died. So therefore, Jesus was born six years before Christ. If you want to say it like that. I think it's kind of funny to say it like that, but other people don't, apparently. But Herod was a great and wicked evil man. He built huge building projects, and, and there's a whole bunch of different ones, but here's a picture of Masada. Um, that he, I mean, up on this outcropping of this rock, I mean, literally they built this huge palace that uh, I, I think I have another photo here of what it uh, would have looked like, and it had several different layers, and you can go up there today. It's just amazing, and this is just one of his projects. 
Um, he, he built the, the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD and, and so forth. And, and the western wall is still there. It's this huge, huge wall that literally the, the people take uh, prayers and stuff in the, in the different uh, crevices of the wall. And once a year they take those prayers out and they burn them to ashes and so forth. Uh, all these different things. And that wall is called the Welling Wall and it's still there today. He was a very powerful and resourceful man. And he had no problem killing anyone who disagreed with him. He had no problem with that whatsoever. And upon his death, his children fought for the throne. He was so wicked that when the wise men came to celebrate the birth of Christ, of the new king, his response was what? To go and slay all the children in the village just in case there might be a king to usurp his authority that people would rally behind. That was the kind of man that Herod the Great was. And the scriptures say in the time of, king, uh, time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly uh, division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Now this d- division of uh, Abijah, what happens was this, is, is in order to be a priest, you had to be part of the priestly family, the descendants of Levi, uh, to be a priest. And in the time of, of King David, there were so many Levites, there were so many of these, uh, the priests around that they had to figure out, well, who does serve in the temple? A temple? How do they uh, serve in the temple? When does that happen? And how's the changeover? So King David divides them up into 24 different family clans, basically. So twice a year, for one week, your clan gets to serve in the temple. You, your, your family, your descendants, you, 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 know, you get the privilege of going there. So Zechariah was you know, from the clan of Abijah, and him and his wife were upright people. But one thing weighed on them. What does it mean to be an upright person? That means you follow the, the ways of the Lord. That means you, you, know, you call yourself a Christian, you act like a Christian. You call yourself a follower of God, you do the things that, that a follower of God does. Because you want to please your father, right? My son wants to please me. Ever so often, he doesn't necessarily please me when he's running around and won't get dressed, and you're like, come back here, Brandon, you know. But for the most part, he wants to please us, well, you know, because I'm his father. Well, I have a father in heaven I want to please, so I try to do the things that please him. That's what an upright person is called. But one thing weighed on them. They were getting older, and they didn't have a child. And in ancient times, if a, if a woman, you know, didn't have a child, I mean, she had one role in the family, and that was what? Propagate the family line, right? To have children. That was their goal. You needed to have children to, to, to work on the land that, you know, whatever business you were in, it got handed down and so forth. Uh, you know, and if you, didn't, uh, if you didn't have a child, you were looked upon as worthless, and, and many times the, the, the man of the family would divorce you if you couldn't have a child back then. And that was even worse. Because as a woman, you couldn't own land unless you had a husband. You couldn't own a shop unless you had a husband or a family to back you up. You couldn't have a job. You were looked at as worthless. And when you got old, there was only one thing to take care of you. What do we have in our government? Social Security, right? Takes care of us when we get older, right? Okay, well, not necessarily, but a little bit. But if you didn't have children, you weren't taken care of. 
Therefore, it was looked at like this. You sin so greatly that God wouldn't allow you to have a child. Wow. To go through life with that burden that everybody looked at you like you sinned so greatly, not just that you have sin in your life, because you know everybody has sin in their life, but you did something so drastically bad that God said, I am not going to give you a child. Imagine the stigma from that. Imagine the pressure from that. And yet this upright, this upright godly family, this man and woman who served God well, were carrying this humiliation and shame. I mean, this thought pattern is, is still around a little bit today. It changed a little bit. If you live a godly life, you have no problems in life, right? I mean, that's, I mean, we don't expressly say that, but we kind of feel that way, don't we? If you have a problem, then others look at you and think, well, what did you do to deserve that? Something is wrong with you. But yet, right here we have a godly couple having a problem. So don't think that once you come to God in life that, that you will have no more problems. Because that's just not how life is. I see all sorts of godly people having problems. Sometimes it's a job thing. Sometimes it's a family thing. Man, you've raised your children in a way that they should follow, and they haven't followed that. I mean, how many older parents do we have? Is that frustrating? Yeah, very frustrating, especially around holidays, right? And what happens is that God is with us in the middle of all our messes, all of our issues, and teaches us as we go through them. So here we have a man named Zechariah, and it says here in verse 8, once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God. So basically it was his family's turn, and he was picked. So for one week he would go down to the temple. And there would be multiple family members that would go down to the temple and they would serve in different areas. He was picked to serve in this area. And he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So imagine this. All the people are down at the temple, especially all your family members, because, you know, somebody from your family gets to go into the temple, and we're going to talk about that in a second. So everybody comes down, and everybody is outside praying because, uh, you know, they want you to come back out. And if you did something wrong before the Lord, uh, we'll talk about that again in a second. But he was chosen. And inside this, the temple you have, you know, the holy place. And inside this holy place, you would have three things. You would have the altar of incense that would burn uh, incense 24 hours a day. You would have the golden lampstand and the table of showbread. Now, like I said, the, the burning of the lampstand, uh, you know, happened 24 hours a day. I'm sorry, I said the, uh, the, the altar of incense burned 24 hours a day. No, it was a lampstand that burned 24 hours a day. Sorry for that confusion. But it represented, the lampstand represented the power of God as it burned 24 hours a day. And then you have the table of showbread that would place 12 loaves of fresh bread every morning to represent God's provision to his people, the 12 different tribes of Israel, one for each one. Then there was this thing called the altar of incense. And twice a day, there was a special incense that was made. 
uh, from this, this recipe that God put together. And God said, if anybody ever tried to replicate this recipe, if anybody tried to replicate this incense, this smell, this perfume, if you want to call it that, if anybody tried to do that, then he would strike them down dead, that they should be killed. Because he had anointed that. He had anointed this incense to be burned for him. In ancient times, Aaron, Aaron's sons got cocky, and they thought God wasn't serious about this. And they took some other incense and threw it on this altar, and boom, a lightning bolt struck them down right then and there. God was serious about this. And everybody said, well, I guess we shouldn't do that again. And behind all of this was, a, was another veil, and it, re, it represented the, 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 the place between the holy place and the holy of holies. And it was this four-inch thick curtain that separated the room where this golden box was. And there was this box with, with two angels that were leaning over there. Their wings were covering the, the top of the box. And nobody was allowed in that room except for the high priest once a year only on Yom Kippur, to sprinkle blood on it so that their sins would be forgiven. But in the room that we're concerned about, only the priest chosen by Lot could go in there. And Zechariah was chosen. It was such a great honor for this to happen. And it only happened once in your lifetime because if you were chosen, no matter what age you were chosen at, if you were chosen to do that, you could never do it again. So this is, in a sense, such a high privilege for this to happen. He was supposed to walk in the room, bow down once, put the incense on the altar, bow down again, and then walk out backwards not turning your back on the Lord. That was his only job. And this old man named Zechariah had this great honor to do this. He was the center of of the attention. He was going to light the incense. And everybody is gathered outside and they're worshiping and they're praying and they're focusing on what he is doing right then because he is the center of attention at that moment. And then in verse 11 it says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Now I would be too. You come into what you, you know, the presence of the Lord. This has been going on for, for you know, thousands, a couple thousand years now, or about a thousand years now, this, this procedure. And nothing like this has ever happened before. I'd be a little startled myself. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is to never take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will, will bring back to the, uh, he will bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go before the Lord in spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts, to the, uh, hearts of the fathers to their children and to the disobedient, to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
This is one of the most powerful moments in Israel's history. All of Israel is is focused on what Zechariah is doing. All the religious people are focused on that. And Zechariah's life, you know, he's been praying, Lord, give me a child. Lord, we want a child. Praying that prayer over and over and over to a point maybe he'd go by months or maybe even years and not pray it again. And then come back to the Lord and say, Lord, I want a child. My wife wants a child. They're old now. They're not going to have kids. And at this very moment, an angel appears. There's over 18,000 priests that would serve a year. Most of them would never get the chance to enter into the temple building. And all of a sudden, he is picked, and poof, an angel is there. And the angel takes it further. All you wanted was a son, but you're going to be getting a whole different type of son. One who is uh, mighty and powerful, one who will lead many people back to God, he tells him. And, 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 you know, and when he said this phrase, he, he says this, and he will go before the Lord the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn hearts of the fathers to their children, disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah knew exactly what this was. He knew exactly what the angel was talking about here. He had studied the scriptures all his life. 400 years before Christ was born, 400 years before this, it was written in the book called Malachi that the last thing God said to Israel before Christ would appear is this. Go back up one for me, Lisa. See, I will send you a prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers of the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. He says that and then for 400 years, God is silent. What a moment this was for Zechariah. Before the Messiah comes, before the deliverance of his people, another will rise up first. He will have the power and the spirit of Elijah and after he comes, the Messiah will come. So Zechariah is standing there, and the angel tells him this. You're about to have the prophet that will come before the Lord. He will be a great man of God. Even Jesus said of John, from the the, the time of ancient prophets till now, no one greater has been born than that of John the Baptist. Imagine that. In Isaiah 40, chapter 40, it says, you know, another great prophecy here. It says, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the wilderness, a a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall be made level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind will, will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is a reference of, of the role this guy would play. He would come out, to the, you know, come out of the desert saying, prepare the way of the Lord. You better get ready because the Messiah, he is coming. So I'm sitting here reading this, and a couple of things dawn on me. It strikes me that the angel comes and names the child. Who normally names the child? Well, if you have an ob- uh, overbearing you know, mother-in-law, maybe they name it. But most of the time... I say that jokingly. My mother-in-law was not overbearing. 
But most of the time, mom and dad name the child, right? And they, you know, they choose names like, you know, names that they like or, or family names or biblical names. You know, they get the name book out and they look at different definitions. Personally, I wanted to give my, my son the middle name Oliver. So his name would be Brandon Oliver or so his initials would be Boo. <laughs> Lisa didn't go for it. I don't know why. Though now she goes, Oliver really is a nice middle name. And I'm like, oh, could have done it. See, when we give them a name, we give them an identity we want them to have. You know, it, it comes from us, our likes, our desires, our opinions, our tastes. I mean, the name is the first decision you make for your child. You know, Brandon's name means from the fiery hill. And his middle name, Josiah, means fire of the Lord. And I don't know what we were thinking when we put these two names together. He does not slow down. My child does not, know. He's always thinking. He's always running around, of course, but when we can get him settled down, he will concentrate. He will watch things and, and sit down and listen and, and all those good things, but his mind is always going. Yesterday morning, he was eating breakfast with Lisa, and I'd already made it up here, and he gets this really sad look on his face. And he goes, Mama, my mouth feels different. Then he does this. I better eat some M&M's. He's always thinking. He's always, I could tell you dozens of stories, and I'll just leave it at that, but I should have known better when I named my child this. So it strikes me interesting that there, you know, that there are key people in the Bible who God names, and he doesn't allow the parents to name. Guess what, Zechariah? I'm going to give him his identity, not you. I'm going to do that. And this is very unusual. Because in ancient times, the firstborn was supposed to get the, the father's name or at least somebody up the fatherly line. You know, grandpa, great-grandpa, great-great-grandpa, or something like that. That's just how it was. Do you know what the name John means? It means God is gracious. So the angel is saying that this child is going to show God's grace before the Messiah was to come. You see, they had a thousand years of law. Law, 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 law. It was shoved down your throat, the law. And if you broke the law, you had to atone for the law. I mean, you know, if you, you, you know, a couple of weeks ago before I left, I had somebody back into to my vehicle. Well, we have a law to cover that. It's called, well, <laughs> we have insurance to cover that. But we also have laws. That person pays, you know, back then, if you knocked a guy's oxen off the road and hurt the oxen, you had to pay, and there was a law, what to do about that. It was law, law, law. And then when it came to sin, there was all sorts of laws and all sorts of atonement. You know, well, you know sometimes it was just a little dove that you had to come sacrifice. Sometimes it was, um, you know, a cow or, or different sacrifices for different things and all those sorts of things for our sin. The rule of laws, rules, rules, rules. It was death and mayhem, punishment for sin for a thousand years. And now God's grace was going to show the way for the Messiah. The ultimate grace of God, Jesus Christ, would come and walk amongst us. You know, we have this impression that God sits on his throne and wants to punish us. He's just waiting for us to, to mess up. You know what I'm saying? You, you, you ever have a, an accusatory father? For, some of you might relate about this, man. If you messed up, your dad was just, boom, on you. 
I, my father was a little bit, not, not 100%, but a little bit like that, so I have to be careful that I don't hand that down to my son. You know, so I recognize that, so sometimes I gotta go, Alan, okay, that's no big deal. But we have this idea that that's what God wants to do. He wants to punish us. And Jesus steps in between us and God and says, no, 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 don't do that. That's our vision of God a lot of times. And this idea is wrong. Jesus says, I only do what the Father wants me to do. You know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I come to reveal the Father. That's what Jesus has taught us. The heart of the Father was poured out through his Son. And before God did this, he sent someone to prepare the way. The same for us today. If there's someone you know who needs Jesus Christ, then somebody needs to go and prepare the way for God's grace to enter their life. Who is that somebody? You and I a lot of times, right? You know, you heard the old, uh, you know, planting a seed and somebody comes by and waters it and eventually, you know, that seed grows and, and then the harvest comes and somebody else, you need to do your part in that process. You need to be God's grace in their life. I love the fact that God gives John his identity. Every time God names somebody, they have a great destiny. And I think that until we find our destiny in Christ, we will not understand who our Father is. Until we search out God enough and we start to understand who we are and who God is and how we relate to each other, we will not understand the Christian life. Unfortunately, in our society, the word Father is so messed up. We have huge segments in our society that don't even have a father in the household. How tragic is that? That people have not stepped up to become father figures for them in the household. And the same thing with mothers. I'm not, you know, it's just not one or the other. But, but I'm just saying that, that represents that nurturing, that protectiveness that a father gives. That, that concept is gone for many people. It's replaced either by, by no father at all but, or a father who's, you know, in our society, fathers can't do anything right. I've often said this. I love the Mother's Day videos. Mother's Day videos is oh. And Father's Day videos, some goofy guy can't even do anything with duct tape. You know what I'm saying? That's how we, you know, unfortunately, that's how it is. We base our, our concept of our heavenly father on our understanding of our earthly father and our relationship oftentimes with our earthly father. When my son was younger, he was fearless when I was around I mean, he would just, you know, he would venture, he would just go all over the place, and, and, and he was so active, we literally gated our whole, li- I mean, we had these gates all built all around, so he, we trapped him in our living room. And finally, we, we took those away, and, and, you know, he got to run around a little bit, you know, and, and then he would often run off, but he would stop and wait for me. He wanted me to come. And ever so often, he would get to a place where he couldn't see me. And what would happen? Oh, this well would go out. He would get so upset. The look on his face was just fear. And then I would come on around the corner, usually on my hands and knees, saying, I'm going to get you, and chasing him around. And that look goes away, and this delightful scream comes out of him. And we're like that with our Heavenly Father. He's always with us. And sometimes we venture off, and we can't see him, and it freaks us out, right? Right? We get away from God, and it freaks us out. And usually he comes around the corner, and he's right there. But I'm just like my son, and I haven't figured out that God is always there. 
even though I can't see him all the time. We have to figure out that God is right there even when we don't see him. For some reason, our identity is wrapped up in either how we were brought up or what we do. And, you know, I really believe this is why so many people never get beyond being hurt, especially by family. We get so wrapped up in it. And by those that are outside our family also. This is also why so many people, when they retire about five years away, you know, after that, sometimes they, they pass away because they, they don't know what to do in life because their identity was wrapped up in their job and not in who they are in Christ. If your job was taken away from you, how would you respond? Some people are wrapped up in wealth and power or who we're married to. And this is our identity. Or in our kids, we're living through our kids. You know, I feel sorry for the kids that are in a family that uh, the mom, you know, they're last in the family and the mom just clings to them. The mom's just like, you're not going anywhere. You're staying, you're, you're staying in this house until you're 30 years old and then I'll pick who you're going to marry. You know that whole idea of the youngest in the family they kind of cling to? We seek our identity through this life and not through God. We need to allow God to give us our identity like he does with John. Because our identity is wrapped up in in who the most high God is. That's where our identity comes from. God comes and he tells us that there's no other gods before him. And when we allow our identity to be our job or our wealth or our non-wealth or our kids we're breaking his command and he eventually breaks us of that because he loves us there's no other gods before him so it's interesting that you know when the angel tells Zechariah this I'm naming your son look at Zechariah's response in verse 18 he says Zechariah asked the angel how can I be sure of this I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. I love this. Here's an upright man who finally gets a chance to go into the temple. Hardly anyone ever gets to do this. He, you know, only 364 guys a year out of 18,000 of them. And an angel is standing there, and they've never experienced that before. And here he's giving them great news. And, you know, I'm telling you the answer to your prayer that you've had for years from both you and your wife. And his response is, well, how can I be sure of this? That cracks me up. I mean, how many times have you thought and said, if I could just have a sign from God, if God would just give me a sign. And here Zechariah is answered directly from God through Gabriel. Man, he doesn't even really hear him. This is just like like us. We pray and we pray and we pray and then we get the answer. We don't recognize the answer. God's like, here's the answer right in front of you, Alan. You've been praying about this and you're ignoring it. So Zechariah asked for a sign. How would I really know? Well, he got one just different from what he thought it was going to be. Verse 19, it says, The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've sent to speak to you, uh, to you and to tell you this good news. Now, do you remember the last time Gabriel was mentioned in the Bible? 700 years before. 
when he was talking to Daniel. Do you know what they were talking about? He was telling Daniel about when the Messiah would come. 700 years have passed, and now is the time. Also notice that he said that he stands in the presence of God. Most angels weren't allowed to do this. Most of them were usually bowing down and covering themselves with their wings. And here Gabriel had such high esteem, he got to stand in the presence of God. He was a very powerful angel that was allowed to stand there. And Zechariah says to him, how can I be sure? His answer was, and now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the proper time. Man, I look at this and I see the pattern of our lives as well. God gives us an answer and we don't listen and we certainly don't believe. How sad is that? We tell God, I need a sign, God, I need a sign. And he already has one there for us. Now Gabriel, I mean, now Zechariah gets another one. No talking. I'm sure his wife was very happy and very frustrated at the same time. It seems to me that we grow the most when we go through a time of suffering. At least that's been my experience. Here's Zechariah having the best time in his life, knowing a little guy is on his way and he can't express it. He can't even talk about it. Now he can motion, he can write and all those things, but uh, it's different. I mean, when my son was born, man, I was out telling everybody. I was talking about him before he was born. You know what I'm saying? Zechariah could not do that. Verse 21 says, Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. What a blessing this was for both you know, Elizabeth and Zechariah. You would think that, that they would never doubt God again. And I'm sure along the ways they had their doubts here and there. But, I mean, man. I mean, you would think, wow. But, the, you know, the Lord always prepares the way when he wants to accomplish something. Maybe, just maybe, he wants to use us to prepare the way for his grace in somebody's life. That's the season we're in. Or maybe he wants you, know, you to be Zechariah and just believe him when he answers your prayers and not, in a sense, challenge him. You know, the last thing that really struck me on this is this was the first communication from God in 400 years. God had not spoken. And when did it happen? It happened when Zechariah was serving the Lord. That's when it happened. You see, we all want blessings of the Lord. We all want the Lord to talk to us, don't we? We all want the Lord to use us and our families. I mean, the, the things that I want God to do with my son and through my son are just, I mean, I, I have a high standard. I want God to use him in, in you know, phenomenal ways with his, his friends as he grows up. 
and what he does with his life. I don't care what job he has in life, as long as he wants to be used by God and God uses him. That's my goal. Accountant, pastor, Wall Street guru, working down at the plant, farmer. I don't care as long as he follows God. But are we willing to serve God like Zechariah? When the Lord says to you, I need you to, to, do, I need you to do this, will you serve him? Or better yet, like Zechariah, he was serving the Lord without the Lord telling him. This is how I want us to serve. He was serving during a time that the Lord wasn't speaking to the people. In fact, most believe that the Ark of the Covenant wasn't even there anymore. I'm not really sure if that got taken away later or if it, if it was still there. We just don't know. But here he was serving right outside the Holy of Holies that possibly didn't even have the main thing in it. Yet he was still serving. There was even debating in that during that time. You know, I'm amazed at how many times the Lord speaks to us. But we're unwilling to even do the simplest task in serving him in life. And, and I'm not saying, I'm not trying to like beat, the, you know, uh, beat you along the way and say, oh, we need more serving here. We need No, I'm talking about just serving him in life in whatever position God has you in. Yes, we can always use more servants here in the church and you know, teaching Sunday school and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not trying to do that. I'm saying, are you serving God where God has placed you in this life? Are we willing to do even the simplest task of serving him? You know, Zechariah could have said, yep, my name got picked, but I don't even really feel that God's in there anymore anyway. I mean, he hasn't spoken in 400 years. Maybe God's just done with his people. Well, I'm not going to go down there and serve in that church because, you know, God's not speaking that down there right now. Well, I'm not going to do this because God's not, I mean, he could have legitimately 400 years. They had not heard from God. Well, forget the temple. I mean, come on, God's not even there anymore. 400 years. But he didn't do that. He served the Lord willingly. And then in the middle of his serving, the Lord chose to speak to him and to use him in such a mighty way. Are you willing to be used by God today? Are you willing to be used by God this week? Are you willing to be used by God this Christmas season when we're supposed to be shining our lights? We decorate with lights, don't we? We put lights on our house, unless we finally get tired of it and say, I'm not going up that ladder anymore. But we sing all the Christmas songs, joy to the world. Are we willing to go out and spread that joy? Are we willing to prepare the way for God's graciousness to come? That's the question for you this season. Are you willing to serve the Lord God Almighty? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for not abandoning Israel. And we pray that we understand that you've not abandoned us as individuals. Maybe we're sitting around and wanting to be, uh, to be heard or wanting to be talked to by you or wanting something to be revealed. Maybe we've been praying about something for years, Lord. And you're telling us, don't forget, because you have a plan, Lord. You have a plan for our lives. You have a plan for this world, but you also have a plan for us. And we thank you for that, Lord. 
I pray that we be a blessing to others, that we prepare the way for God's grace, for your grace, Lord. And I bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine down upon you, and may you reflect his grace to this world. May his face never turn from you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.